Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Wagg. On today's episode, I'll be hosting a discussion with Stephen Feldstein, who's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. Today, we'll be focusing our discussion on your recent book entitled The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance. Perhaps you can start us off by going over your personal background and how this book came to be. Sure. Yeah. So I spent a good portion in, uh, of my career working uh, in the policymaking sphere. So uh, everywhere from the State Department to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to USAID. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in that sort of 13 year period, you know, I had a chance to really think about and work on a lot of democracy, human rights issues to travel back and forth, particularly to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and really kind of just see up close some of the big events that people have been talking about, whether it's the fallout from Arab Spring, looking at the color revolutions, uh, and then just sort of seeing the dra- gradual evolution of how technology is being used. And so, you know, in my, the last job I, I took, uh, you know, in the administration at the State Department, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Democracy Human Rights Bureau. And that's where I really had a chance to kind of work up close with civic activists, uh, have human rights dialogues with repressive governments, uh, and see how all these issues were kind of uh, coming to bear. So when I left government in 2017, uh, and I went into academia, uh, into Boise State University, um, you know, one of, the, one of the issues I really wanted to think more about, study, and analyze was to better understand this convergence between digital technology, governance strategies, uh, and authoritarian, uh, in particular authoritarian regimes, but, you know, I guess political systems more broadly. Uh, and so that was sort of, that was the groundwork for what really got me interested uh, in this issue area to really try to understand better, you know, what, what do we, what does it mean when we think about different technologies that are used by governments, whether it's surveillance or censorship to enact their political agendas? How do they use those technologies? What are some of the patterns that we can discern? How do they, how do these technologies fit into some of the broader strategies that they have uh, to maintain power? That was kind of the, how this project really kind of came about, at least the inspiration for it. That's great. I think you certainly have a the perfect background for the discussion that you bring about in the book and that hopefully we'll have today here on, on the podcast. So I'm going to start us off just with kind of a broad question and we can dig into some of the specifics later, but this is sort of the question that a lot of politicians and academics are trying to wrestle with uh, right now in, in a number of different areas. And so the, the question at large is, basically have these new communication technologies shifted the balance of power between civil society groups and governments? Um, so maybe yeah. you can give us a brief overview as to maybe what you thought before kind of doing some of this research and how the book ties into that question as a whole. Right. Well, you know, this is one of the, the big questions I explore uh, in the book. And, you know, there isn't a, a sort of simple answer to it. I mean, ultimately the answer is yes and no. Uh, and so, and there's a number of different ways that you can sort of slice and, and examine the effect of technology and what it means for civic activists on the ground. And to what extent it's empowered certain types of regimes to enact their, their agendas. So, I mean, I think on the one hand, you can look at countries like China, uh, you know, increasingly Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and you can look at the effect that these technologies have had in terms of those governments being able to do things to a greater degree than they were able to do before at a more efficient cost. And this is one of the kind of issues I've written about uh, in the past in terms of, you know, the use of artificial intelligence and how they assist in a bet these regimes in terms of collecting information and then acting against uh, particular nodes of dissent, right? And so, you know, in those sorts of countries, you can see particularly in China, how, you know, these technologies really have worked in synergy uh, with the overall repressive objectives uh, of uh, Xi Jinping uh, to pretty great effect. I mean, whether it's looking at the periphery in terms of, you know, repression in Xinjiang, or whether looking more broadly at the mainland uh, in terms of, you know, surveillance uh, systems that are linked to social credit uh, and so forth, uh, you know, there really is kind of a, a new modality of how uh, the Chinese, the CCP, in particular, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, how they're able, able to enact, uh, you know, regimes of control based on these information and communication technologies. At the same time, I think there's been uh, you know, a little bit of hype when it comes to what these technologies can actually do, even in countries that have fairly low capacity or pretty weak security institutions. Uh, so, you know, many countries uh, in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, you know, where there are less sophisticated uh, security services or there's less of a resource base and capacity to do things, you know, these, these technologies have had limited effect. 
Uh, so you look at places like, you know, Uganda, where, you know, they are using some combination of these technologies, uh, often in conjunction with elections, but, you know, they really aren't the end all or be all. They're, they're, they are in of themselves not going to lead to a transformational difference in terms of how regimes are able to hold on to power. What they can do is on the margins or in certain instances, they can help sharpen or accelerate the ability of security forces to do certain things better in a more sophisticated way. And so that to me kind of is how I sort of come down. But essentially that in if you look at very high capacity coercive regimes like China, these technologies, if used in an effective way, can be transformational in terms of what the regime is able to do. But for the large bulk of countries that have lower capacity coercive institutions, uh, you know, uh, lower capacity intelligence services, these technologies bring a marginal effect. They help in certain instances, but they are not sort of determinative in terms of being transformational with regards to how a regime will suppress dissent. I think the presentation of capacity in this book really does bring to light the fact that it is such an important mediator for a lot of these things. But I want to uh, dig down a little further into kind of the mechanism behind that, because I think one of the things that I've heard, one of the hypotheses about repressive digital technology in general is that like other technologies, the reduction in transaction costs that it enables, it could be seen as a ladder for governments with traditionally low capacity in other realms to jump a certain stage and repress groups or take advantage of certain technologies that they wouldn't be allowed to do with traditional capacity. So why is it that countries with low kind of physical infrastructure, low um, organizational capacity can't just fully take advantage of what you call technological capacity um, in a way like a country like China who has that full capacity can? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So there's two ways I would sort of think about this. I think number one, what I want to be sort of clear about is that what I'm talking about is transformational, a, a transformational ability uh, that these technologies would abet. So in other words, if you're looking at, let's say the DR Congo, right? Uh, I'm, uh, what I'm, what I, I'm not saying that using uh, spyware provided by, you know, Israeli cybersecurity firms like NSO Group doesn't provide an advantage. But what I'm saying is that it provides uh, an incremental advantage. It doesn't radically or wholly transform the ability of the regime there uh, to enact a completely different level of repression, right? So in, in other words, it gives an advantage, but not a, a transformative advantage. That's kind of like point one. But point two is that, you know, capacity matters for a lot of reasons. Uh, so, you know, for example, these tools give an ability to essentially collect information or suppress information in one form or another. So surveillance allows regimes the ability to access uh, what different uh, opposition groups potentially are communicating or to figure out the organizational structure uh, of those groups or what they potentially are planning. Uh, censorship allows a regime to block uh, the ability of uh, you know, opposition groups to mobilize uh, in a mass scale. Uh, internet shutdowns likewise are, are used sometimes to good effect, sometimes not. And, uh, as a means to cut off escalating demonstrations before too many people get out of the street and the, and the game is sort of lost, right? So that's kind of what these technologies can best do. But what they really require is then set a, a kind of partner effort or a correlating effort to actually make them something that will, that will bring a, an advantage. So you can collect all the information and data you want about particular opposition groups, but do you have intelligence services who are able to act accordingly? Uh, what do you do with that? Do you have a legal persecution system that you can then use uh, as a means to pick up people, lock them up, uh, and, and, and keep them in detention for prolonged periods? Are you able to sustain that effort? Do you have security forces that will be loyal to the regime that will, are, are able to carry out those instructions and do so in a sustained manner? Right? All those other factors matter, not to mention the fact that you have to have people to begin with who are able to understand how this technology is being used, to read the, the patterns and, and distill and process the data that's coming in. I mean, it's not something that you can sort of just pick up uh, out of nowhere. It requires a lot of training, uh, a high level of cohesiveness, and a pretty strong command and control structure. Uh, and so that's why all these elements uh, you know, are really important in terms of working in conjunction with ICT. It's not something that you can just sort of, you can't just sort of take some, uh, an ICT strategy off the shelf 
put it in place in a very poorly organized, undisciplined force and expect that all of a sudden you're going to have uh, major repressive outcomes that occur. You got to have, you know, you got to have some way to actually make this stuff work uh, in an effective way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think when we dig into specific infrastructure of the internet and other digital uh, systems in specific countries, this gives us an even better sense of why certain strategies work in some places and don't work in other places. So maybe you can talk to us a bit about what, how the structure of the internet in specific places impacts the effectiveness or the efficaciousness of these policies, as well as how international companies, not all of which uh, originates or operates in typically repressive countries, interact to enable this industry to flourish as it has in the past few years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, really what we're seeing like at the very moment is, is a really um, a really difficult struggle that's occurring uh, that one of which you're sort of seeing a, a battle between national governments, which are seeking to gain more control of uh, who is accessing platforms, what they're saying, what kind of information is circulating uh, in international companies that are attempting to kind of maintain uniform standards uh, that are pushing back in certain instances uh, that are folding in other instances, but a, a real jockeying between kind of the sovereign interests of certain uh, governments, uh, which are not only authoritarian governments, uh, but also weak democracies, uh, uh, you know, juxtapose against international companies like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google, and so forth, which find themselves increasingly beset by tension in the relationships. So I'll give you a few examples that we're seeing in real time, but India is a great case in point where you're seeing rising levels of censorship demanded by the, the Indian government, either in terms of surveillance with regard to WhatsApp or in terms of taking down content uh, with regard to Twitter. Uh, and that's, you know, there's uh, court cases that have been filed. There was a police raid on Twitter's offices, uh, you know, uh, that, was, that was really important symbolically in terms of showcasing what the Indian government is prepared to do. Uh, if Twitter want to see to its, uh, you know, content takedown requests, Turkey, you're seeing similar social media laws uh, being passed. Uh, many other countries around the world. So you're seeing this really, this struggle really happen. And I think what we're seeing is that countries, you know, fully recognize that the internet has sh uh, shaped up to be a battleground when it comes to opposition and civic movements who threaten and challenge regime control for them to organize and mobilize different individuals. And so they say, wait a second. Uh, you know, we, uh, it is, it is uh, our regime survival is at stake when it comes to being able to kind of control this information environment, or at least put pressure on platforms uh, to, to filter the kind of information that people see. And so rather than just sort of sit back and say, well, there's nothing we can do, you know, Twitter has these, you know, uh, international standards and we can't push back. They're saying, wait a second, we have options. You know, uh, the Indian Modi is saying uh, India is an important country. We're big, we have a large market. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna push them. And if uh, you know, uh, you know, to what uh, who's gonna blink first? Is Twitter gonna say, look, uh, we don't want to have access to a billion plus users? Uh, and will they and will they leave the market, or will they say, okay, we'll 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 give in? Uh, in, in some ways, it's a little bit of the game of chicken right now that a lot of countries are playing uh, in terms of sort of saying what matters more: upholding your standards or or continuing to have access to large amounts of individuals that you can monetize. But uh, under conditions where you're going to have to give in to the rules uh, that we impose, uh, so this struggle is kind of happening, uh, you know, all around the world right now, and it's it's far beyond even the China issue, where China essentially made a decision uh, at the very beginning uh, and said it's our rules, or you know, we're not going to let you operate. And you know, most Western platforms at that point left, uh, in which case then you know a, a slew of domestic substitutes came about. So it's kind of interesting how you're seeing that evolution take place. But this to me is the forefront in, in many respects in terms of uh, the internet access and who controls what in, within, uh, you know, within that domain. Has this always been kind of a gradual change or adoption of these policies or have there been specific events, particularly the Arab Spring that have you know, shaken dictators and, and certain governments and shown them the disruptive nature of certain technologies and incentivized them to invest more heavily in these types of technologies? Yeah, I, I certainly think that the Arab Spring uh, for many countries has been a signal moment uh, in terms of demonstrating the fragility of their rule uh, and, and the, the lens to which you know, the internet can help fuel and mobilize mass movements that directly 
uh, challenge uh, longstanding regimes. You know, I think Egypt in particular sort of stands at this case study of how, uh, you know, a, a, a you know, regime that's been in place for a really long time that seemed to have a pretty good handle uh, on society that, uh, you know, had kind of been able to rule with a mixture of coercion and, uh, you know, co-option, uh, all of a sudden the whole structure became unbalanced, uh, mostly through the, uh, the use of social media. And, and you know, that I think really uh, sort of was used as a cautionary tale by a lot of regimes that basically said, wait a second, uh, you know, we can't, we can't be complacent here. If it happened in Egypt and Tunisia uh, today, it certainly could happen to us tomorrow. And, and, you know, frankly, empirically, if you do some of the, if you look at sort of different ways that regimes are changing over, uh, you know, in the past, coups were by far the, the most prevalent means by which regimes, uh, authoritarian regimes uh, turned over, right? So, what that meant was that if you are a, a dictator, you know, the, you had to watch out first and foremost for challengers coming from within the ruling elite uh, who would potentially pair up with different uh, factions in the military uh, or otherwise and depose you, right? And so that really meant uh, that the premium and uh, ought to be in terms of monitoring, watching your, your, your adversaries within the ruling clique, uh, ensuring that they're, uh, you know, that you had uh, essentially security forces that would work against one another and watch each other so that in order to sort of divide and make sure that no one was too strong to be able to take you on as a ruler. But what we've seen since in the, starting in the 2000s was kind of a switch where uh, popular protests or losses, unexpected losses in the ballot box or some combination of that has actually become the primary means by which authoritarians are deposed. And so this popular, the popular outside of the ruling clique movements are now viewed by, by many leaders as the biggest threats. And social media and ICTs generally are very closely associated with the kind of rising strength of those movements, which means then that not only has Arab Spring kind of uh, highlighted and flagged, I think, to, to, different, to different leaders that, wait a second, you need to get a handle on, on what, what these uh, communications technologies can do, but that generally speaking, the threats coming from the wider population and that's a pretty big sea shift in terms of tactics that uh, you would want to put together and how you would structure your, your security forces in order to counteract that threat. Uh, so perhaps we can, we can dig into some specifics here. You use the concept of a, the dictator's digital dilemma, which is, is a play on kind of the dictator's dilemma in the traditional sense. So perhaps you can talk us through what is the, the dictator's digital dilemma and how do we see it play out, perhaps in one of your case studies, uh, which are from Ethiopia, the Philippines, or Thailand? Yeah, sure. So, you know, this, this idea is essentially that there are constraints to how far most countries, with a couple of exceptions in mind, uh, and I'll mention those in a minute, uh, how far uh, a country can go in terms of controlling its uh, information, online information environment, how far it can go in terms of having, uh, you know, constraints on, on the Internet. Uh, before it risks uh, a backlash, either from the public or an economic or economic cost. So it's the idea that uh, there's a balance between having leaders uh, asserting control uh, over the information environment, but that the more control they seek to assert, the more they risk actually undermining innovation and prosperity in the economy. So a good case in point that I talked about in the book uh, was in Thailand, where a few years back, the Thai regime uh, the junta proposed putting in place a single internet gateway to monitor uh, all data coming in and out of the country. Uh, and there was significant concern about what the, the implications of that would mean for the country's economy in particular. There was concerns that it would lead to uh, you know, big slowdowns. There was also concerns that international companies based and headquartered in Bangkok would pull up and, and go to other, uh, other countries where there was a, a freer information environment. And so there was, you know, a growing kind of backlash based on the potential reputational factors that having putting in place a single internet gateway uh, would would cause. And so ultimately, what happened was that the the issue that caused the Thai regime to back down and decide not to go forward with a single internet gateway wasn't the political freedom issue. It wasn't that citizens in Thailand were concerned that there would be uh, the government would have excessive monitoring capabilities and that their political freedoms would be reduced. The issue for, that resonated the most with Thai citizens was that their economy would be hurt, that they would be out of jobs, and that their future prosperity, their prospects for, for wealth uh, would be significantly di diminished. And that's what caused the, uh, you know, the government to sort of to back away from that. And so 
you know, what that really shows is that, especially for um, kind of mid-sized countries, uh, you know, there is a huge cost associated with undertaking certain types of digital oppression actions, whether it's internet shutdowns and the cost associated therein, or other types of internet controls where uh, international companies potentially will move, will just pull up and, and go to other, other markets. Now, one of the countries in particular, China, has been able to kind of solve the, the digital dilemma uh, by virtue of the fact that it's so large, uh, it has a, such a large market, uh, and that there's a much higher threshold in terms of what companies internationally will tolerate before deciding to pull out. And so to that extent, you know, there's lots of companies, Apple is a great case in point, they were just in the news last week, uh, in terms of all the different compromises when it comes to data privacy, they're willing to, uh, to make when it comes to the Chinese government in order to stay in the country. No other country could get away with that when it comes to Apple, not even the United States, really, in terms of the pushback Apple ha uh, has given uh, to U.S. authorities. But in China, Apple is willing to make those compromises because the, gov because the market is so big uh, and because the resolve of the Chinese government is so strong. Uh, and then for those companies like Google or Facebook, which uh, you know, uh, decided for various reasons that those rules were too much for them to bear with, well, you know, then the, the Chinese government has been able to kind of uh, essentially work with uh, the private sector to come up with alternatives. And now they have, you know, whether it's WeChat, Weibo, or other platforms, very good ways uh, to surveil what their citizens are saying, uh, to take data when they need to, uh, and not to really have to worry about the consequences. So China is a, is a country that's been able to kind of get around the digital dictator's dilemma, uh, but, they're, but they're exceptional. Uh, for most countries, uh, it's not that easy, and they have to constantly balance the need for control with the need for innovation and economic growth. Yeah, and that's really interesting, especially when we dig into some of the specific tactics, because certain tactics like internet shutdowns, which you mentioned in the book, are devastating to the economy and wipe out you know, any online activity that's occurring during that period in time. Um, and obviously that's condensed when certain investors realize that this might happen at any time and pull out future investments as well. But there are also other forms of tactics where it's more targeted um, and you can kind of filter out specific things or manipulate public opinion in ways that don't necessarily affect the economy. So perhaps you can give us an example for people who are kind of thinking about digital repression in the abstract. Um, what exactly do these types of policies look like on the ground? What is the range of policy? So my, my favorite policy that you discuss, at least in terms of the ubiquity of it, and I think the fact that it's easy to relate to here in the US where we've seen a lot of kind of misinformation online and we've heard a lot about kind of Russian trolls and hacking and that sort of thing, is the idea of flooding and you describe as electronic flies. So perhaps maybe you can use that example or other examples just to give listeners a sense of what range or the breadth is of these types of policies and how they can have a different impact on local society. Yeah, yeah, no, that, I'm happy to. So, you know, in particular, I think that the case study on the Philippines is really relevant to your, your question. And, you know, the, the kind of bottom line situation there is that, uh, you know, there obviously is a need to find ways to manipulate or control the information environment in order to, uh, you know, support uh, Duterte, uh, the president of the Philippines, where you go Duterte, his political agenda. Now, unlike counterparts in more traditionally authoritarian countries, where the idea is assert more control, constrained choices uh, that citizens have on the internet in terms of how they can interact, uh, he has approached things very differently and one that is much more emblematic of democracies. So, you know, in democratic countries, uh, especially places like the Philippines, there's both a lot of illiberalism at play uh, traditionally, uh, but there also is a pretty freewheeling and open atmosphere. So the idea that you could suddenly go in and censor on mass or, or uh, undertake mass surveillance of citizens doesn't really work. Uh, the, the, the risk or prospect of public backlash against those sorts of tactics would be pretty significant. So instead, the name of the game, uh, and you know, there's other countries like Hungary, Brazil, uh, uh, you, uh, and so forth, Turkey, that also kind of uh, enact these sorts of strategies is to distort and manipulate information in a few different ways uh, and use that as a way to confuse the situation enough that people either tune out completely from uh, you know, the political discourse or they end up really trusting in what government uh, trolls and propaganda uh, uh, actors and so forth are saying. Uh, and, and so, you know, what Duterte has done uh, in the Philippines is built up a real disinformation machine, and it does a few different things. So one is it puts out a continuous stream of pro-government propaganda. 
Uh, and, you know, it, it constantly is sort of tuning its messaging and having this sort of reinforced and, and parroted by a wide group of influencers, as well as more, uh, you know, kind of lower level uh, people on social media uh, that sort of takes that message and, and, and parrots it and trumpets it uh, throughout the day. Uh, the second thing they do is that they also target and harass, intimidate and flood, as, we, as, you, as you raised, uh, those who are government critics. Uh, and so, for example, let's say there's like a report that comes out, like a Human Rights Watch report that criticizes the war on drugs in the Philippines. Uh, you know, what, you, what they might do would be to take the hashtag that's being used to promote that report uh, and then flood it with questions and lies and falsehoods, right? They might say, you know, but did you say, did you say, did you say this uh, show that there was complete bias in this report and the person leading it is actually someone who's a convicted drug criminal? And then you would have, you know, uh, social, uh, pro-government social media trolls uh, retweet that message, throw out more misinformation. And so pretty soon what they've done is they've either completely drowned out the correct information that's critical of the government or so distorted what the actual truth is through their disinformation efforts that citizens on the ground no longer either have no longer have any idea what is true when it comes to that report or simply just tune out completely and say, I can't make heads or tails of this. I'm out. Either way, the government, the state wins in that in that uh, scenario. And then the third thing that in this kind of disinformation strategy, that the Philippines government would do would be to target specific people who are viewed as uh, influential and relevant uh, and, and challenges to the government. People in the Philippines like the journalist Maria Ressa, who founded the online news site Rappler, or people like the opposition politician, Senator Leila de Lima. Uh, who's uh, now been in jail for close to four years on spurious drug charges and who had, had a very influential online presence at the time. But to use social media to target and harass those critics uh, and then uh, sort of take, have laws sort of take uh, borrow from that aspect, uh, persecute them, putting them in jail, and therefore silence them. But the combination of these tactics really shows how disinformation can work as a new method and new strategy uh, in countries that are, you know, generally open, are weak democracies, uh, but where you have autocratic-minded leaders who are seeking to consolidate power. So one of the facts that comes out of your use of the Digital Society Project's data on digital capacity and repression capacity and enactment is this gap between capacity to utilize these techniques and the actual enactment of these techniques in practice. And so you've talked a bit here about the Philippines versus some more autocratic countries uh, without certain societal institutions to push back against you know, more noxious um, strategies. And so I'm, I'm wondering in general, and this is also you know, a big question that your book gets at and that the wider literature is still dealing with, is, is do these digital technologies disproportionately aid autocracies instability? That is, does the willingness of autocratic and illiberal governments to utilize digital repression technologies inherently favor autocratic governance over democratic governments where there is societal pushback built into the system? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough, question to kind of fully answer. I mean, I think certainly one of the, one of the relationships that I saw, uh, you know, throughout is that there is a really strong, uh, you know, correlation uh, between a, a, an authoritarian government uh, and the use of a variety of digital repression techniques. And so I think that's kind of an important data point. In other words, you know, if you're authoritarian, you are going to rely on these techniques as one of part of your strategy to rule. Uh, in this day and age, given what uh, regimes have seen when it comes to all the different ways that dissent is able to materialize, uh, it, it goes without saying that making sure that there is a, a uh, strategy in place to deal with uh, you know, dissent, uh, particularly online dissent, is an absolutely integral part uh, to a ruling, uh, to, to regime survival. Uh, but you know, how different authoritarian countries uh, undertake these tactics, they can vary from place to place. And, and part of the question is, you know, the degree to, uh, of capacity. So, you know, what I think is relevant there in particular is that, you know, you see a lot of authoritarian countries, uh, let's say, take, say in Central Asia, for example, or let's say in some parts of, of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa uh, or even South Asia, where there's a very large gap between what they are actually able to do, at least when it comes to domestically uh, and what they need to sort of make up between what they would like to do. 
right? So there's this kind of big gap. And so how do you then make up that gap if you're a regime that knows it has to put in place certain types of digital controls, but doesn't quite have the domestic capacity to do so? I mean, really, you're faced with a couple choices. So one of your choices is make up the difference through importing that, that um, you know, that expertise and those programs and systems. And so that's where uh, you see, you know, um, technologies that stem from China, but also from a lot of uh, democracies of technologies uh, from Israeli firms, from the United States, uh, from, from Europe. That's where they, they can come in and really make up that difference, help countries bridge that gap between what they'd like to do and what they actually can do. And in some of my case studies, Ethiopia being a good case in point, uh, that's what I actually saw, where you saw spyware companies from a, a wide variety uh, of, of countries come in and help the Ethiopian intelligence services uh, bridge that gap in terms of their surveillance capabilities. So that's sort of one thing. The second thing you can do is, is essentially adopt lower capacity strategies uh, to sort of make up for what, what you otherwise can't do. So that's where a reliance on internet shutdowns or kind of persecution of online influencers uh, it really comes into play. Uh, so also, again, in Ethiopia, uh, you know, you're seeing consistently the, uh, the government relying on internet shutdowns as a way to sort of crudely stop uh, dissent. And you're seeing that happen right now, even when it comes to the civil war occurring in the Tigray region uh, in the country, where rather than sort of rely on a more sophisticated digital operation in order to target, uh, you know, the TPLF and other uh, people, uh, adversaries that the, you know, Egyptian forces, uh, Egyptian, uh, Ethiopian forces are fighting against, uh, they're instead relying on, you know, really basic tactics, just shutting down connectivity completely and, uh, and using this information blackout as a means to hopefully supplement uh, and complement their, uh, their repressive agenda in that area. Uh, and so that kind of shows you sort of the limitations that, uh, and obstacles that authoritarian regimes need to overcome uh, particularly when they're in lower capacity. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting point. I think just as with larger discussions about autocracies and democracies, we tend to focus on the most autocratic or the most stereotypical um, typologies or countries themselves when we think about uh, what an autocracy is in our minds and what it actually does. And in this case, and in those cases, usually China and Russia are the ones that stand out because they're large, they have a big influence in the world, and they're usually at the cutting edge of use of technology, use of kind of repression, both digital and otherwise. Um, but in this case, you mentioned how that can kind of distort our perceptions of what countries are actually capable of. Throughout the book, and in reference to your case studies, you continually come back to the idea of China's role, and you interrogate that and push back against the idea that China really is, or has been, as much of a driver of this, these trends towards digital repression as it is often portrayed as in the wider literature. So perhaps you can speak to that uh, more generally. What role do you see China playing currently, um, and do you see them as a fundamental driver of repression outside of their border, or is this often overblown? Right. Yeah. I mean, the China question is one that, you know, it really has become a central <clears throat> focal point for a lot of policymakers in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it was one of those kind of big questions at the very outset I wanted to probe and explore. Uh, and I wanted to kind of understand better the dynamics on the ground in terms of just, you know, asking some basic questions about motivations and incentives. So, you know, what was fascinating to me, and I started asking, you know, these questions in the beginning of the, you know, uh, research project uh, in Thailand. And I, uh, you know, and I, and I expected one set of answers. I, I expected that there would be more of a direct Chinese influence uh, when it came to choices that were being made by security forces, particularly uh, when it comes to the kind of the use of digital tech. And I remember being surprised initially uh, about the responses I was getting from my Thai, Thai counterparts, particularly Thai counterparts who I was speaking to you know, off the record from intelligence and security forces who had real, really no, um, you know, you know, no reason not to kind of be fully transparent or open about uh, some of the sources of, of, of their repressive conduct. Uh, but, you know, while they, they were certainly willing to talk about what they were doing or what they were not doing, you know, fairly uniformly, I got a much more nuanced picture when it came to the effect and influence of China. And I kept getting those nuances kept coming up uh, in my subsequent state case studies in the Philippines and in Ethiopia, where, you know, I, I think 
the idea of, of sort of parallel modeling is one that was real and that, you know, all these countries were aware of what China was doing. Uh, some were trying to emulate to some extent uh, those tactics. Uh, many were also trying to be careful uh, to say, look, you know, we have our way of doing things. And obviously we need to make sure that we get at all the terrorist elements who would uh, destabilize our country. But we don't want to be China either. In fact, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, a number of, of uh, officials who were took very clear pains to sort of say what they were doing was not ch what China was doing, uh, even though there were certain elements that were common. And so, you know, it just it, it just increasingly seen that looking at China as a primary driver of the types of repressive decisions that were that different leaders were coming up with in the in the countries that I uh, undertook research was not fully capturing the kind of broader nuance uh, and and the kind of different levels of incentives that actually were sort of driving decision making that there were many other factors at play uh, that seemed to have uh, a significant level of influence when it came to determining uh, what direction uh, leaderships uh, would go into. Uh, and that was everything, you know, from the scope of security forces, the nature of the threats that they were pushing back on, uh, political practices and the kind of shape of what those practices and norms would allow for or not uh, when it came to enacting certain types of censorship or certain types of mass surveillance. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of other, other factors. So, you know, it was funny. I remember like a conversation, several conversations I had in Ethiopia where, you know, I talked about the, the kind of reliance or the potential use of uh, Chinese surveillance technology, spatial recognition and others uh, as a way to help the Ethiopian security forces keep tabs on the population. They said, what do we need digital technology for? If we want to, uh, you know, keep tabs, we have a physical surveillance network that we've used for decades that has been far more effective. Like, why would we just all of a sudden, you know, discard the way we've done things and, and you know, build up from scratch in a very expensive, hard to use and unwieldy mass surveillance system when we have, when instead let's use targeted surveillance to get at some specific threats, but then we have another layer that uh, has worked quite well in terms of allowing for oppression. So, you know, it, it just was the, the kind of more I pushed and probed, the more um, the China question became more complicated, where on the one hand, you know, China clearly has had a resonant effect reputationally in terms of just what it's been able to demonstrate about how these tools can be effective. While on the other hand, its actual push to enact some sort of grand vision of digital oppression where it directly peddles these tools to willing autocratic allies who then learn uh, from, you know, Chinese manufacturers uh, how to how to use them and implement implement at scale these tools just seem to be a step beyond what we're I actually found uh, empirically. So speaking of these demonstration effects, as you know throughout, a lot of these tactics, even in the digital arenas, have been used for quite a few years now, at least in, since the aftermath of the Arab Spring and, and oftentimes before that by many countries. But one area where I think China is perhaps having the largest impact in terms of these. Uh, kind of modeling effects is in their use of kind of cutting edge AI and big data. And this is something you speak to towards the end of the book and you point to as potentially being another step, something entirely different in innovation in and of itself in digital repression. So what you say is, speaking of AI and big data, it requires considerably fewer human actors than conventional repression, entails less violence and comes at a lower cost, yet it may well have more wide ranging and systematic impacts. Returning to kind of the original question that we started this podcast with, does AI and big data present a new threat capable of upending the balance between citizens and the state, or are we still in an ill-defined area uh, where we don't necessarily know if this is something that's transformationally different than these traditional repression tactics? Yeah. You know, it, it, it is, this is a tough question. It's, it's really a sharp point of debate. And I think partially it's a sharp point of debate because we're sort of straddling where we, you know, where we currently are and where things will potentially go. And in some respects, it varies uh, country by country in terms of, you know, what, what potentially the use of these new and more advanced tools will have in terms of reshaping and upending the repressive environment. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to kind of recognize is just how quickly 
you know, uh, digital life has changed uh, for individual citizens. I mean, you know, if you look back 10 years and levels of connectivity and the use of social media platforms around the world, I mean, those numbers were mini school school in terms of what we see today, uh, particularly when it comes to the, to the global south, uh, where you know levels of connectivity and reliance on on digital technology uh, for business transactions, daily communications, and so forth is skyrocketing, but yet still remains in some in some places like fairly low level. And and so, you know, one of the you know. Uh, uh, hypotheses that people have is that as more people come online, as they become more and more digitally reliant, uh, this opens up a trove of data, of information that countries uh, are will be poised to exploit. And that with, you know, the use of deep learning techniques and other, you know, uh, algorithmic uh, approaches uh, that untracking, uh, un, you know, unmasking, uncovering different patterns, being able to detect earlier on uh, you know, uh, uh, sentiments or or movements that are starting to coalesce against regime will be things that governments will will be increasingly uh, better able to do in a more effective manner, with more accuracy and with a lower use uh, of of you know of human personnel and human operators than ever before. And so, I think to, to that extent, there is um, you know this is something that we should all be very cognizant of and and you know worried by in terms of where this is going. But it also does go back to the earlier point we discussed, which is that you still have to have high capacity, coercive institutions uh, that are available to take advantage and exploit this information. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't really mean anything. And so to that extent, um, it, it, it won't be a shortcut to repression. You need to have a repressive structure in place first that can then take advantage of that. So in other words, like look at Russia and look at China. Uh, it's not as if repression was, was invented uh, yesterday, when it came to uh, you know their governing strategies, it's been uh, a longstanding part of, of regime strategies for political control. These technologies have augmented that, right? But it's not as if uh, that apparatus didn't exist uh, to begin with. I mean, likewise with other places where you know I think there's concern about how AI could transform governance. I mean, look at some of the Gulf states, for example, which already have in place fairly sophisticated well-resourced source security and intelligence agencies. That's really where I think AI could be transformative. And so it's in those really coercive environments where I think that'll matter. Uh, I think in, in places uh, you know, where there's less, uh, a less cohesive security institutions, I think um, you know, the threat is a little further, further off. But nonetheless, it's something I certainly think we, we ought to take very seriously. Yeah, I mean... I don't think the government necessarily has a great track record in being proactive about approaching things like artificial intelligence um, rather than being reactive in a way uh, where the damage or the systems have already been put in place. As you mentioned earlier on in the discussion, a lot of these companies are operating out of you know, Western democracies that are selling a lot of the data and the tools utilized by these countries um, you know, right out of their own backyards. And there has been very little done to at least direct that in a way in which limited, um, you know, harm is done. And so the, the final chapter in your, in your book details some of the pushback that has occurred in recent years, both from the state and from civil society actors. And so a couple of those examples were the recent ban of tech from uh, Xinjiang, um, so perhaps maybe you can detail if you think that is a possible strategy or template for future use by Western governments. Mm -hmm. And also you mentioned Bellingcat's work, uh, which I've uh, run into a few times working on misinformation topics here in, in the U.S. And I think they, they do excellent work and have a fascinating story as to how they came about and how they kind of operate outside of, of government control. So maybe you can detail either both of those or one of those that you see as being important moving forward. Um, in the fight against transformative digital repression. Yeah, sure. Well, let me start by just sort of making two broad general points, which is that number one, um, you know, it actually does, it's not that complicated in terms of having, putting in place, um, you know, a, a, a set of rules and restrictions that would, um, you know, better hold accountable uh, the types of technologies that companies export. That it actually is something where there already are uh, a set of principles in place 
in which to better regulate that according to human rights standards, which I'll talk about in a second. And so we don't need to recreate the wheel in terms of how we would approach that. That already does exist. It's more a matter of willpower. Uh, and then second, uh, you know, especially with regard to outfits like Bellingcat and others, you know, I think that in this landscape, you know, there's, there are many pockets of innovation coming from civic groups, from individuals, from nonprofits uh, that continue to surprise and put on their back foot governments with repressive objectives. And that, you know, we are in the midst of kind of a continuing back and forth where governments seize the advantage in certain respects, but then individuals find other ways to kind of hold them to account. And so that, to that extent, you know, it, it, the future is really unwritten in terms of where the, the struggle will end up. Uh, but that I remain really heartened by all the different creative ways that individuals on the ground, civil society groups are able to push back, adapt to different repressive techniques and find new ways in which to, um, uh, you know, put to, to kind of undermine uh, the digital repression objectives of the state. Uh, but let me start with the first first point for, for a second, which is that, you know, when it comes to legal restrictions and certainly some of the, um, you know, the ideas put in place when it comes to Xinjiang are, are emblematic of what I've talked about. But, uh, you know, there, there already are, you know, a set of guiding principles put out by the UN uh, that are widely viewed as kind of um, the right template when it comes to companies uh, being obligated to conduct human rights due diligence ahead of time in terms of predicting, projecting what kind of harms potentially would result from, their, from selling products to particular clients, particularly those with a past history of human rights abuses. Uh, and, and, and as well, uh, sort of part of the guiding principles is the notion of ongoing monitoring, conduct, conducting human rights impact assessments uh, as well, uh, and then uh, having sort of uh, means to kind of uh, claw back or take back or shut off the use of these technologies if credible allegations of human rights abuses arise and to build those in contractually as well. Uh, and, and so this is not new terrain, really. What, but the, the problem is that, you know, for many companies, they would prefer not to go down a very difficult route because one, they're worried that the, the client governments they will work with are, are ones that would not pass muster, uh, or two, that undertaking such, uh, you know, such an approach would scare them off, uh, these governments in terms of being potential clients. So they choose to look the other way uh, or to overlook uh, this completely. Uh, and so, you know, it, and it's only when, you know, different journalists or others uncover abuses, do they then suddenly, uh, you know, apologize and sometimes pull back. You know, the, there was recently uh, last year, a case involving the Canadian US company Sandvine, which provides uh, censorship block material to the Belarus government. Uh, and that's an example where, you know, they were providing this equipment and, and, and Lushkashenko, the president of uh, Belarus was using it to directly stop uh, different websites from functioning that, um, you know, were expressing critical viewpoints or, or allowing the opposition a means to communicate. Uh, and then only after Bloomberg, um, you know, put out this investigative article that Sandvine suddenly decide that it was no longer going to have a relationship with Belarus. Well, you know, it only, I mean, until then, uh, they were more than willing to kind of work with a very repressive regime, uh, one that uh, I think most people around the world uh, were aware of the very bad abuses they were doing. Uh, and so it, sort of, so it, sort of, it sort of shows you that, you know, these companies have a long way to go, a lot of them, in terms of actually putting place the type of accountability for these practices that would make a difference. Um, but, you know, the, the, the second issue, too, in terms of adaptation in groups like Bellingcat is that, you know, I really think that, um, you know, there, it is increasingly hard for governments to hide the abuses they do. Now, they may not care, right? They may, you know, whether, it, like, despite the amount of scrutiny that's uh, occurred when it comes to the mass internment camps in Xinjiang by the Chinese government, it really hasn't behaviorally stopped them from continuing to mass persecute uh, an ethnic minority uh, in the country. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, at least there is the understanding that sometimes change will occur and sometimes enough reputational embarrassment will happen, particularly with weaker regimes, uh, that you can really see uh, a, course, a course correction take place. And, you know, whether it's exposing corruption via the Panama Papers that led to a, a slew of senior government resignations from around the world, uh, or other similar types of uh, efforts. I think this adaptive capability that civic groups are doing on the ground, using new digital forensic tools uh, and finding ways to penetrate closed government accounts 
uh, or other sorts of things along those lines, uh, I think is really making a difference and it's something to, to watch and we part of the story and the narrative that we see when it comes to what does digital technology mean when it, when it comes to politics globally and how is it evolving and to what extent are different actors uh, able to persevere and persist despite uh, big challenges in that regard. Well, I do think that your book puts a lot of this in one place and it serves as a great resource for individuals listening who do have an interest in this subject and would like to learn more. But is there any final thoughts or any final resources you'd like to point out to any of the listeners before we conclude? No, I, I, thanks again for having me on. I, I, I really appreciate it. I mean, these are tough questions uh, and they certainly have been fascinating to me in terms of putting those together and, and being able to write this book. But, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I think that there are so many more uh, new developments that are taking place uh, and there's a real need to further do more investigative uh, work on the ground to do empirical research and to understand uh, what these technologies mean when it comes to the uh, the struggle, uh, the political struggle on the ground that we see in so many contexts. And so I encourage those, uh, you know, in the University of Washington and others who are listening uh, to, you know, to, to think about uh, how you can engage in this type of work and how you can do interesting research to push knowledge about uh, what these technologies, how they're evolving and how they're being used. I think it's a really important field. I think it's one that's growing and there's lots of opportunity to do interesting uh, work. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Stephen, for coming on. It's been great to have you. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks for your great questions. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.